Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. House of 1000 Corpses. <laughs> What are we, what are we, what are we, who are we? What are we doing today? How are you? <laughs> I, you know what? I, there are days, there, I don't know about you, but there are days when you, when you wake up, you get that, you get that special little tingle in your fingers and you're like, we're going to make some podcast magic happen today. And that, that is how I am feeling. Yes. Yes. I am so excited for today. You know, I, I woke up. Earlier today, just just thinking to myself, I needed to talk about Baudrillard and clowns and Americana, and the only way we can do that is is by talking about the patron saint of contemporary horror cinema, Mr. Robert Zombie. Mr. Robert Z. Zombat, to give him his full title. It has been too long. Yes. Uh, and, and, you know, it, we were talking about this earlier, but it kind of occurred to me that, like, we had front-loaded Rob Zombie's worst films uh, in the discussion of our show by, by starting off with uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween movies. We did a whole month of Halloween films early on in our, in our run. And perhaps, perhaps that was folly. <laughs> now, now, long-time HV listeners will know that perhaps one of the first... Uh, sizable disagreements between me and Ash. And we've had many productive, critical conversations over the, holy shit, years that we've been doing this show. One of the very first, and I think probably still one of the best, was our disagreement about Rob Zombie's Halloween, which uh, I I did did not like. Uh, and it is it is just so... It's, it's such a, a kind of genuine pleasure to be talking about I, I i think arguably one of one of rob zombie's best films and certainly one of my favorite film trilogies yeah yeah i'm, I'm really excited to talk about rob zombie's original work the, this stuff is is you know I, I talk all the time on the show about you know like a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek joke about rob zombie being the last living auteur director but it's tongue in cheek for a reason, you know, like Rob, Rob Zombie's original movies that aren't remakes of Halloween are just like really, really strong. Uh, yeah. And also like, you know, he's, he's had so many financing problems. He's had to crowdfund to make films. He's had to make films on massively reduced budgets. He's had to make films whenever his actors had the time to like, come out and do like two days of filming at a time you know um like there there is such there's such kind of dedication to a singular aesthetic vision in these films um which you kind of have to respect genuinely oh oh no t- totally we we're gonna we're gonna talk about uh, a, cer- a certain Walter Benjamin article in, in just a little bit here, but uh, R- Rob Zombie's doing uh, Objet Da uh, incredibly well here. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, Rob. It's and, <laughs> and and it's just nice. It's just nice to be talking about something 
easy and approachable and you know family friendly it's a fa- it's a, this is a um, movie about family more so than the avengers this, movies this this movie is in fact the entire trilogy is really is really uh about how the real friends are the people that we met along the way. Right. It's, it's, a, it's about uh, learning to come together with the people you care about to overcome obstacles that life puts in your way. These are these are yeah. feel good uh, movies uh, about hustling, you know, you know, wake up, grind, get on it, you know, get your best friends together, yeah. murder a bunch of people. That's what this is all about. Yeah. Uh, uh, broke Fast and Furious films. Woke. Rob Zombie's Firefly trilogy. <laughs> they, they are they are exactly the they are exactly the same because they are about family. Now 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 I just want like a a crossover movie that's like it's like death death race, but it's it's uh, Vin Diesel and Captain Spaulding. <laughs> oh hello everybody! Good morning. It's. it's Wherever you are, a very good morning to you. It is this week's HV. We are talking about the great Rob Zombie, uh, Robert Zombert, and the landmark uh, House of a Thousand Corpses. Um, but before we get into the film, uh, I want to say a massive thank you to everyone who supports the show on Patreon. It helps us keep going. It helps us uh, pay for access to research materials to films, uh, and to keep doing what we love doing. So if you really enjoy horror movies, if you like thinking about spooky politics and spookier films, please do check out patreon.com slash horrorvanguard. You get early access to everything we do, bonus episodes, and access to the HV Crypt, the spookiest podcast Discord server that you could possibly Imagine. And we are so close uh, to opening up our fried chicken and gasoline and horror memorabilia shop. So if you can help us just a little <laughs> bit along the way, it's going to be fantastic. Um, in, indeed, that, that I mean that's one of our stretch goals. On <laughs> I think we're I think we're getting real close. And, to and it. just to clarify, the, the the chicken is fried in the gasoline. Just just to be direct about I, what we're making. I mean, here. how else would you do it, right? I honestly can't think of another way. I'm, I'm sure there's a there's a chef listening right now that knows some esoteric use of like a plant byproduct for this, but nah, not for me. Um, Consider me old fashioned. Um, how how are you doing, Ash? I'm I'm feeling good. How are you doing today? Oh, I am I am alive. I am well. I am enjoying some delicious caffeine at the current moment. I am. I am so ready to visit, uh, uh, you know, the what, one of the intellectuals, one of the academics who I, who I know has influenced my work dramatically and yours as well. But uh, PhD, Doctor Satan. I, I too, I too have been heavily influenced by Doctor Satan. Um, but there might be, sadly, sadly, you know, academia being what it mm-hmm. is. Doctor Satan has now become a bit kind of apocryphal, very. Sadly, little read in these modern. I know times. it's a tragedy. I if I, every every day I have undergrads DMing me about who I should be reading, and every day I am just like there. There was a humble American scholar who did most of his work out in the countryside and never got big city name brand recognition. But yeah. you just you just gotta read Doctor Treatsy Satan on the Fish Boy. I think it's just it's powerful. 
<laughs> it tells us a lot um, about contemporary ide- uh, identities and mechanical reproduction. I mean, I don't think you're wrong, but for for people for people who are who are maybe not familiar with the work of Doctor Satan, the pioneering pioneering and very experimental work of Doctor Satan, um, a, a, as explored in House of a Thousand Corpses, would you mind would you mind just kind of just explaining a little bit about Doctor Satan, House of a Thousand Corpses, what we're doing here today? How is it that we come to construct the idea of Americana, the pop-cultural driftwood that floats through the tumultuous sea of American history? Americana is necessarily incomplete. The good old days are constantly being re-theorized and re-territorialized by American historians. The humble countryside, the honesty of a pre-digital age, the leave-it-to-beaver approach to the American cultural memory is not, in itself, a passive remembering but rather an active restructuring of the history and memory of this country. In Cat's Cradle, Kurt Vonnegut wrote, Americans are forever searching for love in forms it never takes, in places it can never be. It must have something to do with the vanished frontier. This vanished frontier takes on a colonialist character by most appraisals. The frontier is always further west, always and necessarily within someone else's home. But this positioning only serves to create nostalgia for a past misremembered as Little House on the Prairie in Gunsmoke. It belies the atomizing and alienating forces that obscure history and identity. Jean Baudrillard once famously quipped, Americans have no identity, but they do have wonderful teeth. Perhaps a more earnest approach to this idea is raised by folk singer Utah Phillips. Yes, the long memory is the most radical idea in this country. It is the loss of that long memory which deprives our people of that connective flow of thoughts and events that clarifies our vision, not of where we're going, but of where we want to go. All of this preamble drops us off on the doorstep of Rob Zombie's House of 1000 Corpses, with more questions than answers. This is a film in pain, a film struggling to feel complete in and of itself. This film is Americana on the vanishing frontier. As if speaking to the audience, Otis shouts, I brought you here for a reason, but unfortunately you and your sentimental minds are doing me no good. My brain is frozen, locked. I have to break free from this culture of mechanical reproductions and the thick encrustations dying on the surface. This was Rob Zombie's debut film, and as such, it is a novice work. Rob Zombie himself has gone on to see it as just a calamitous mess, and that all I see is flaw upon flaw upon flaw upon flaw. These flaws, however, struggle in the direction of a long memory and restore the cult to cult cinema. In Walter Benjamin's The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, he writes, The audience's identification with the actor is really an identification with the camera. Consequently, the audience takes the position of the camera. Its approach is that of testing. This is not the approach to which the cult value may be exposed. In House of 1000 Corpses, the camera becomes a character. Its frantic movements, jagged cuts, and bizarre insertions of flashbacks and flash-forwards are delirious, as if a character struggles to waken from a drugged stupor. Amidst the actors enacting the violence of the suburban against the rural, the camera itself attempts to make its voice heard. 
John Berger once lamented the death of authentic art, claiming, For the first time ever, images of art have become ephemeral, ubiquitous, insubstantial, avaluable, valueless, free, because they are commercial products that lack the aura of authenticity of being an objet d'art. But House of 1000 Corpses has the aura of an authentic objet d'art. The camera is a crack in the old world, struggling to break free. It oozes through this crack, half-formed in an agony. It struggles as much as a meta-commentary on restoring the long memory, or a debut in film in and of itself. It dies as it lives. To quote Bono, America is not a country, it's an idea. And dear listeners, ideas are malleable things. They are clay on the potter's wheel. Join us as we work to shape the clay of Americana as portrayed and theorized by Rob Zombie's debut film, House of 1000 Corpses. Oh, God, that was good. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We got Baudrillard, we got Bono, we got Otis, we got everybody who's anybody today. One day, and I, I firmly believe this, we are going to release an episode which is an hour, an hour and 20 minutes long and is just going to be your pricey. <laughs> <laughs> or, or conversely, uh, uh, a, a, ser- a series of written works penned by yours, Ghoulie, in a back-to-back uh, bepaged collection, perhaps a book, if you will. Just, just willing this into the ether right now. Publishers who are listening, we know there's a few of you. Just, just think it over. So think it over in a way that is done by sending an email to us. (laughs) But yeah, this is, this is kind of, we'll, we'll get on into this later, but one of the things I find most interesting about Rob Zombie's original cinematography and to a lesser extent, his Halloween movies is that this is Americana exploded but before we get into that, yeah. before 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 we have too much fun, we have to go through the, the formalism, formalism zone. Uh, where do you want to start? Where would you like to begin? In here, in the formalism zone. So the first thing, the first thing I want to get into is Rob Zombie's thoughts on this film in retrospect that I quoted in the Precy, right? Uh, you know, in, in interviews, Rob Zombie has seemed kind of surprised that this film has a cult following now. And and he looks back on it in, in the same way that like all of us as artists and people who have creative endeavors look back on our early work and we kind of cringe a little bit. You know, we, we see our, our fumbling and founding steps and not necessarily something a bit more refined. Me looking back on the audio editing for the first several episodes of this show. <laughs> that is only natural, because the whole point of art is that it resists the kind of capitalist impulse of the perfectibility of the product, mm-hmm. right? So um, some of the very best advice I got when we were thinking about uh, starting this show, for example, was uh, from the the legend that is Mike mm-hmm. Rignetta, who the former host of PBS Idea Channel, uh, an excellent podcaster and sound engineer, who said that you have to make 10 of something uh, before you've even really figured out what it is you're trying to make. Um, and like, so I totally get that Zombie looks back on this and, and thinks all you can see are the flaws, but it's from the, the, the genesis of a starting place 
that you see the the kind of beginnings of mature work right oh ab- absolutely like i i think that this movie is one of the most underrated movies to come out in my lifetime in in terms of like a critical piece of art i, I think there's a lot in house of a thousand corpses that like uh, people people can't see the forest for the trees here right like there's a lot of like loud rob zombie stuff going on that critics have hooked into right the like the frantic pace of the editing the weird insert shots that are everywhere rob zombie's passionate love for like the american carnivalesque mm-hmm. but that's that's not the whole picture right and i think rob zombie's own self appraisal is is sobering right because if you've ever worked on a long-term project making pieces of art over and over again you know like you're you will see a trajectory in yourself that perhaps others do not see Mm -hmm. yeah i think that's i think that's true and i think that this well maybe maybe for people who haven't who haven't seen this or haven't kind of seen a lot of rob zombie's work maybe we could kind of just what are the hallmarks, you know, what, what are the elements of the immortal science of Rob Zombie thought? You know, what, what makes, what, what are Rob Zombie's principal aesthetic or kind of filmic concerns in your opinion? I I would say the, the one big one that I think is inescapable is Rob Zombie takes nostalgic Americana and explodes it. Right. We, we get the the nostalgic Americana vision turned inside out. Yeah, which is which is actually a point that I really think we should pick up on um, later on, because I think that raises a really obvious question, which is. Is there kind of actual content here or is this simply a kind of endlessly self-recursive postmodern pastiche? of manufactured mass marketed products and culture from the 1950s to like the mid 1970s. I think there is actual content to it, but I really do. I think it's important that we kind of unpick the, the post modernity of Rob Zombie a little bit as we get into this. Oh, I, I, th- I think you're, you're completely right in, in that appraisal. I, I also think that something that I find really interesting about Rob Zombie's work is this this unembarrassed shame-free love for the long history of horror you know like in in every rob zombie anything whether we're talking about wipe zombie rob zombie any of his movies the comics there there are these kind of like boundless references to to like the labyrinthian past of horror and the gothic in a way that Mm -hmm. isn't overly artistic or snide it's like an it's an expression of an honest love and admiration and there's something that's just really refreshing about that yes i think so it's refreshingly lacking in cynicism Mm -hmm. yeah despite the content the manifest content of literally every single rob zombie film i don't think there's a single one of them that's cynical I mean, they, they they are often very shocking. Uh, this one I don't think is particularly shocking or frightening. No. Um, I think people misremember House of a Thousand Corpses. I think they remember the cultural mythology of, like, the lost director's cut. 
the NC-17 40 minutes of footage that made this the most extreme movie, you know, the, that had to be removed and can never be shown. You know, and, and they don't uh, remember the actual yeah. film, which is just really goofy. Which is which is deeply silly, but it is it is, uh, I think almost touchingly in places, a very very sincere, um, and I think to be honest, I even even I think that sincerity kind of hampers the film a little bit, um, and yeah, okay, it's his first film, and you kind of expect a kind of touch of juvenilia. You expect a sort of lack of fluency in cinematic language, and that's that's all there. That's that's fair enough criticism, but I am sort of like a a, a, a maybe a kind of more technically competent director or whatever whatever you take that to mean might have inserted just a little bit more kind of like distance and cynicism into it, which would have made the tone much more sour. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think overall, because uh, this is this is this is in places kind of this is. In my opinion, this is a roller coaster. This is a carnival ride of a film. And I mean that in both all of the positives and all of the negatives that that conjures up in people's heads. You're correct on both counts. Oh, oh yeah. I, I would completely agree. I, I think like this is... If you're someone who's not not into horror as as kind of like a passive consumer hobby, but into horror as... An artistic modality and and a history, you know, and even further that, like, you know, like this is this is a ideal gothic Marxist film, right? Like, if you, if you are concerned mm-hmm. with a materialist past of the horrific, th- this is almost a love letter to everything we would want to talk about. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. T- um, t- TL- TLDR: I, I, I really feel that this is a very Mark Fisher Christmas kind of movie. <laughs> I I really think your point about the explosion of Americana is super accurate, especially in terms of the kind of aesthetics and um, editing and kind of style of, of this film. Like everything is right. <laughs> if you, if you are, if you're, if you've, if you've ever written an essay on the Gothic, what everybody quotes is the first page of Fred Botting's <laughs> uh, landmark. There's a there's a book by an academic called Fred Botting. He wrote a landmark text on 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 the Gothic, and the very first one of the very first sentences on the very first page, which has appeared in countless undergraduate essays, is "Gothic signifies a writing of excess." Right. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, we, the second I, you, I, yeah, I, read, I knew exactly what you were about to say. <laughs> I've read so many essays which quote that. But here's the thing: this is excessive filmmaking, right? The editing is 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 frenetic. The the costume design, the cinematography, everything about this is is kind of spilling over, right? Oh, one one hundred percent. There there is no. There's no time for stillness in this movie, right? Like this is a deeply excessive movie, but not an indulgent one. And and I think that's important, right? Mm-hmm. This movie isn't it's not it's not like Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead where it's just kind of like deeply indulgent to what Zack Snyder feels he needs to do. This is this is a much more loving and a much more earnest excess. 
Yeah, and I, I, I think we're going to get into this when we talk about uh, Frederick Jameson and um, the cultural logic of late capitalism because there is a, yeah, a kind of warmth to this that a lot of Snyder's stuff doesn't have. And a lot of other kind of like quote-unquote, you know, metatextual horror mm-hmm. doesn't really doesn't really bother with uh, Cabin in the Woods, I'm Looking at yes. You, which is a bad movie. Okay, um, <laughs> Cabin, Cabin in the Woods is House of a Thousand Corpses if House of a Thousand Corpses never experienced a love. Yeah, Cabin in the Woods is House of a Thousand Corpses if House of a Thousand Corpses was raised on exactly the same horror ephemera that it was, but hated all of <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I think that's deeply accurate. So do you want to talk about music? Um, I mean, this is a, a Rob Zombie family production, so it is a technically a musical. This is exactly what I was going to say, <laughs> that this film would make an incredible musical. Well, I mean, like I, I, I would say this is technically a musical. It's got like your montage of Rob Zombie songs. It's got Sherry Moon Zombie doing a singing bit. Yep, absolutely. Uh, it, it, it very technically is. It, it gets dialed up in the Devil's Rejects, which ends with with a slow motion sequence over a Leonard Skinner track. It's <laughs> just, which is honestly, which is honestly one of my favorite things in the entire trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, Rob Zombie uh, gets gets how music works in the context of film, right? As well as being an incredibly successful musician and and singer songwriter and guitarist, like he he kind of gets what the whole point of incorporating music is, right? Oh Which yeah, is this uh, this uh, effective intensity. Um, wh- what do you think? So, so I want to start, but like Rob Zombie is one of my all-time favorite musicians. Whether we're talking about his so, like his quote-unquote solo career as Rob Zombie or White Zombie or like any of it, like it's just phenomenal music. Also, his brother, uh, Power Man Five Thousand, also kills. Like this is great stuff. Mm. Um, power family goals there, <laughs> but. Uh, what I would say about the music in this movie, um, also a uh, fun fun fact, uh, Rob Zombie's brother, the frontman of Power Man 5000, makes a guest appearance in this movie uh, in a in a poster looking for two missing boys. It's actually Rob and his brother, and they were younger. Yeah. Uh, a little, little, little trivia. So now, now you'll win Rob Zombie trivia night uh, when you go to the bar next. But um, for music in this movie, what I find to be really compelling is that like, there's a lot of conversation around what makes a great score in a movie, right? And you've just got like just just iconic and legendary scores, you know, like John Williams stuff and things like that. And 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 those are those are scores where like they make their presence known. You can hum them. You know, everybody hums Indiana Jones and Jaws and like, you know, like Star Wars themes. And then you've got kind of like the other school of thought where like if people remember the score, it's a bad score. You know, the score should be there yeah. to move the whole body of the film, you know, and not be a statement piece. And I think there's value to both sides of that. What I find interesting yeah. about Rob Zombie's approach to scoring movies is that he does both. <laughs> yes, yes. I think that's true. Like when, I think that's true. When, when fucking Pussy Licker comes on in this movie, I am just like, it, I am just raging instantly because that song is such a banger. 
and then like there, there are other parts you know like other rob zombie songs come on and like i'm just i'm just like as a film critic i'm like i'm like oh this like this really you know like the, the lyrics of the song if you know those those are underscoring the character really well in the scene and, and it's you know like the the beat is really moving with the action it's, there's a fluidity here you know you're not really fe- hearing the song as rob zombie's classic song you're feeling it in the moment so I think like it's just so fun that he has both firing at the same time. And you know, shout out to to the editors who did a lot of the work to kind of sync action with 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 the soundtrack as well. Um, as we have always said, cinema is a is a collaborative process. Um, wh- one thing I really love about Rob Zombie films is that they tend to be kind of like a refuge of sort mm-hmm. for like incredible character actors. Yes. 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 Um, Cause I, I, I just want to say RIP Sid Haig. Cause Sid Haig absolutely owns in this film as captain Spaulding. Sid Haig is incredibly good. S- Sid Haig also has like, an amazing and storied career as an actor just mm-hmm. spider yep. baby coffee like all of the weird stuff that he did early in his career it's just like it's, it's, the, the sig Hag filmography is an incredibly powerful body of work that i think more mm-hmm. so than yep. most actors get to say embodies a long tra- like a long american trajectory of almost like 60 years of this nation's country through cinema. Uh, Jackie Brown, uh, Kill Bill, THX, just so many incredible films. But he's like Captain Spaulding in this film is like, it, uh, we, we kind of joked that this was a film about family or a family movie. But like, if, if you were growing up and you, you stumbled across a late night horror host one night, it, it radically altered the course of your life, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm like, if you if you stumbled across Captain Spaulding's adverts on a late night TV show, that's it. Your life would be completely transformed. And and just like just like any, you know, to to be a little tongue in cheek again, just like any great auteur filmmaker, right? John Waters, David Lynch, Rob Zombie. You know, they're they're all often to their own detriment, just just absolutely wedded to their aesthetic visions. But they also have this kind of retinue of actors that they regularly rely on and regularly work with. And they will reshape projects and they will wait for these people to become available and ready to get into these roles. And I think that creates something that like, I think to a lesser extent, Sam Raimi has this. But like that, that creates a much more unified style across the filmography, and and it also like, again, uh, uh, to quote uh, another Vin Diesel character, you know this 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 family. <laughs> I I could not agree more. I really couldn't. This is this is me driving my like classic American muscle car straight to the goddamn moon just to like high five Rob Zombie and be like it's for family. Uh, I mean, if we're going to talk about family, though, we should probably talk about... I mean, Bill Moseley is great. Karen Black kills it. 
uh, Rain Wilson actually got really big off the back of this film, uh, which, you know, it's not a, a, a massive surprise, um, really, in retrospect. But we should probably talk about maybe, maybe, maybe the, the, the power couple goals of this <laughs> film. Yes, yes, we um, need to talk about uh, Sherry Moon Zombie and Rob Zombie. What do, what do we think about Baby? What do we think about Sherry Moon in this I, I, I was, was We were talking about this before we started recording, but like, I, I, I know that in interviews, Sherry Moon Zombie doesn't necessarily see herself as an actor and kind of just like does these movies because they're Rob Zombie's movies and they're fun and she, of course, wants to work with him and all of that. And she's turned down roles from other directors. But, like, I, I firmly do believe that, like, for the type of character that Sherry Moon Zombie regularly plays, this kind of, like, frenetic, violent, working poor Americana woman figure that, that she regularly embodies, like, it, it's the best. I think she's the best there's ever been for that kind of role. And, and on top of that, like, Lords of Salem, too, was like I, I think that's Sherman Zombie's breakout role, <laughs> but like there's there's so much depth to her character in that, and, and there's so much range that like she she's like the gem in the Rob Zombie cinematic crown, I guess. <laughs> what are your thoughts? You know what i I was super critical of Halloween, and I I stand by I stand by pretty much everything I said about it. Uh, back in the day, um, I I I don't think it works, but I think in this context, like when the when the when the kind of uh, liquefied Americana madness is dialed up to eleven, like all of the performances in this, but I think Sherry Moon particularly absolutely shine. Like she's so good, she's so good in this. Oh yeah, I I totally agree. Like this type of character, it, it's just phenomenally well executed. And and I think part part of this is like, it's 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 all of this comes together to make the Rob Zombie magic. You, you know, like there's there's something cosmic about what's going on here. We have this alignment of like this this metal musician kind of just accretes these legends of American exploitation cinema to work with, right? He, he winds up in the orbit of people who share his vision, his goals, his style, you know? And he, and he sacrifices kind of mass marketability and access to better funded studios just to pursue this vision. And, and it all kind of like, all of this comes together to, to, to form like, a, it's like a tapestry we're watching being woven before our eyes, right? Yeah, I mean, this is this is why I think auto theory uh, has its strengths, but also its kind of massive mm -hmm. weaknesses, right? Which is like, yes, distinctive style, distinctive distinctive um, themes, but like without any of the pieces, oh, yeah. without any of the other threads, none of this would work. Like none of this. Would if work. you took Sherry and Moon Zombie and Sid Haig out of this movie, it would deflate. It, yeah, if you took if you took Sherry, if you took Sid, if you took Bill Mosley out of this, not watchable in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, it's it's just a much bigger uh, if, film. If you gave if you didn't give Rob great editors to work on it, 
or 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 you gave him editors who didn't really get like the insert shots. It's not going to work. And yeah, I mean, I I think we could nitpick and say that like and and talk about the kind of formal problems with the film because I do think there are some. Um, but a lot of that comes from it being the director's very first film. It comes from it having a fairly troubled production history with Rob having to shoot multiple versions of each scene mm-hmm. so there could be a kind of full-on exploitation one and the 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 one which would be more um uh, uh kind of acceptable to the uh to the production company that was financing yes, and it. In- infamously a lot of those insert shots were done in his basement in post yep ab- absolutely absolutely um we could talk about the fact that like they ran out of money mm-hmm. <laughs> like but oh i i honestly do feel like a lot of that would be just nitpicking and being and being uh, kind of unnecessarily uncharitable to what I think is a fairly cohesive and and coherent aesthetic vision. Hear, hear, hearing all of the separate parts hear, work. Towards. Yes, hearing you move for sympathy for a Rob Zombie film just makes my day. It just brightens my heart <laughs> to hear you say that so much. I mean, I talk. I I I. Uh, again, I am. I am unabashed in my criticism of halloween and halloween 2 which i think is even worse yeah i'll agree with that <laughs> um but, but but i i will i will go to the wall defending uh the firefly trilogy as being the kind of pure that's the good stuff that's the good rob zombie that's the rob zombie i want this is peak rob zombie and i think like auteur theory works and it holds together but only if you detach the auteur conceptually from lone great man directors and reaffix it to the collective that actually makes these movies right like like the lynchian emerges because in part david lynch is able to work with a steady cast and crew you know the, the same can be said for tarantino the same can be said for any of these directors who have just like iconic styles iconic deliveries right they it's less about them and more about the fact that they've able <clears throat> been able to nurture and sustain a, a collective body filmmaking is inherently communist we've said it before we will say it again uh it is and there's nothing that anyone can do to change that um i think i think that is a good point at which to to exit the formalism zone and behind door number two, <laughs> is time. It's time to enter the house of a thousand Zizeks, the house of discourse. Where would you like to begin? Oh, I, I. There are. This is a. This is a smorgasbord. We we've been busy in our underground torture laboratory, sewing together history's greatest philosophers. So we have a cornucopia of terrifying treats in store for you, dear listener. But I think it's good to start in something maybe a bit more grounded before we talk about, like, Augustine and Zizek. Uh, we, we should probably just talk about class. Let's. Let's do it. We have we have a film, uh, a film whose antagonists are um, unabashedly southern, rural, poor, um, and, and, and that is foregrounded. That's made explicit. You know, Captain Spaulding in the very first kind of major scenes of the film talks about, talks about these out of towners coming, coming down to sort of mock, uh, you know, those, those poor hicks. What, what do you think about how this film kind of deals with class? 
Well, I, I in part see House of a Thousand Corpses as a revenge movie. You, you have the, this kind of quartet of roughly college age or at least collegiate coded uh, individuals, two couples, right? And mm-hmm. like, I think if there's any one substantive flaw of the movie that bothers me the most, it's the fact that the two women are really underwritten and they wind up being our main character in the end. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a that that's a kind of that's big, a huge scripting uh, problem that this movie had not being able to foreground her in advance and give her character before she becomes the final girl. Yeah, absolutely. But with that said, we we have kind of the classic revenge dichotomy going on, right? This this evokes Carol Clover, right, in Men, Women, and Chainsaws, her commentary mm-hmm. on "I Spit on Your Grave," right? the The flip side of "I Spit on Your Grave" is the revenge of the. Uh, urban against the rural and here we see that played in inverse yeah. right we have the revenge of the rural against the suburban absolutely this is this is very much and it's very clearly coded as the suburban mm-hmm. right because one of them is keep keeps calling their dad it's it's they're know, literally uh, from yeah. the leave it to beaver house that's literally the house yeah ex- exactly like and it's such a deliberate choice as well, right? Such a deliberate choice to make it that house, right? The very image of bourgeois suburban um, domesticity. So it's not the it's not the urban versus the rural. It's the suburban versus the rural. Mm-hmm. Yes, and and I think that that is often in a, a very important distinction, right? Because I think that especially as we move towards like our contemporary context and certainly house of a thousand corpses is closer to the contemporary moment than I spit on your grave. We, we have a situation where like the suburban enclave is like the bastion of this kind of colonial white supremacist invocation of America. You know, it, it, it is the home of capitalistic excess. And that I, I think is a much better like nexus of this tension than if it would have been like two city slickers uh, ha- having a hills have eyes experience. Yes. Um, and I think it underscores the kind of class dynamics as well, mm-hmm. right? Totally. So one thing, one thing that I, I definitely wanted to talk about is how uh, C- Captain Spaulding and the Firefly family and, and friends are coded as being working poor, specifically rural working poor. Uh, Yeah. What do you mean? How how do you want to kind of unpack that? So one thing that I find to be really interesting is a lot of the times when horror movies uh, have villains that are rural working poor, we, we kind of like, we have this like trope of like this degenerate hick. You know, like these 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 backwoods people and, and their bygone ways, right? Which are necessarily violent and evil and crazed. And I think that Rob Zombie is playing with this trope in a very interesting way. Um, the Firefly family and, and Captain Spaulding and friends appear much more lived in and organic. You know, it's 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 more like this is an example of kind of rural working poor dialed up to 11 than it is a like horrifying caricature. It still plays into that trope where, yeah, like these are deranged villains, right? They have an underground experimentation lab ran by Dr. Satan. (laughs) But like the, the tension is explicit. 
in this text, right? And we're, we're given much more sympathy for the Firefly family and especially a lot of sympathy for Dr. Spaulding. Dr. Spaulding. Wow. Captain Spaulding. Captain uh, Dr. Spaulding. I He's can't believe you would erase the Captain Spaulding's military honors. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, I'm sorry. That was, that was a moment of weakness on my part. I just wanted to feel closer to Captain Spaulding. So I switched his career over to academia. And for all we know, uh, you know, Captain Spaulding might hold a doctorate. We were not privy to his full background, so. Yeah, absolutely. These are not. These are not. Um, these are not kind of your atypical. This is not a Hicksploitation film. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Though, yes. Thank you. Even though it could easily have been presented as one, and in fact, like uh, Zombie says in in later films that he want he wants you to root for them, right? He wants you to root for them, and he deliver and he said like, well, nobody cares about the kids, right? Nobody. Nobody cares about the kids. That's fine. Nobody like, but the whole point is to put the viewer into that uh, kind of uh, uh, kind of a problematic ethical position of rooting for the uh, monstrous vivisectors with their own uh, murder basement run by Doctor Satan <laughs> Just to to see what that feels like. And what, what I find, there's something that I think is really compelling before the, the kids get murdered by PhD Satan, is that... <laughs> Satan, PhD. <laughs> he is, I, I'm going to go out on a limb here. Uh, that man is not an MD. <laughs> <laughs> no, we've, we've seen what he does, and he is clearly not, he is clearly not a medical doctor. <laughs> that, that is not the work of a DDS. That is decidedly the work of someone who got an advanced degree in literature or art history or something like that. <laughs> uh, it is far too avant. <laughs> But uh, so what I so something that's really interesting, right? And that's the first interaction between um, our two male protagonists and uh, Captain Open Parentheses, likely a PhD, Close Parentheses, Spalding, is that we have uh, Captain Spalding, who has like this really endearing and earnest interest in the the kind of grotesquities of Americana, right? serial killers and horror movies and, and the kind of the underbelly of the Americana pop culture phenomena. And, and he's, his character is really interesting, right? Cause he's overbearing, but still kind of endearing, right? It would, it seems like he would be really uncomfortable to try and talk to, even if you're into the same stuff he's into. Mm, yeah. Um, but you know, in that initial exchange, right? He, he keeps calling these two guys assholes and they are assholes. Like, like this movie really cleverly makes those two guys the most insufferable dudes in a Rob Zombie movie. And Rob Zombie's movies are full of dudes who just murder everyone. Like the, the, these, so these two guys, uh, if you haven't seen the movie, they are uh, traveling through the country trying to find the kind of weirdest, most kish, weird uh, roadside attractions. And they're writing a book about it, right? Uh, in a sense, they're doing a hillbilly elegy. Oh my god! <laughs> like, yeah, but they're not even from there, right? It's this, it's mm -hmm. this, it's this kind of voyeuristic uh, anthropology that they're doing. 
Yes, and this further plays into this movie as a revenge film against that idea and against those two because there's no earnest desire to explore Captain Spaulding's attraction, his background, or his history, right? They, they, want, to, they want to do some cultural reproduction, right? They, they want to take his story and his iconography and juice it for money and fame in their book. It's, it's not, it's not a, a, a loving exploration of these things. It's an extractive practice. Yeah, absolutely. And so his, his hostility and his kind of, um, his sort of a, kind of aggression and dismiss and being so dismissive of them. Um, those sort of make sense, right? It's, it's this, uh, it's the condescension of the outsider, Right, because he even thinks that like their their interest in the legend of Doctor Satan is not really that authentic, because how could it be? Because they haven't been personally uh, invested. They ha- they haven't been involved in it. For them, it's just something that can be consumed and then turned into another product. Absolutely, and and there's another scene later on, right, where. Uh, uh, they're they're doing the Firefly family is doing their Halloween show, right? And, and it opens up with Grandpa on stage doing kind of like an, a semi coherent string of really vulgar vulgar jokes about oral sex. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and and like you know, like it's natural that the Firefly family is enjoying their stage production, right? Because and I mean, like the, this is part of the layered experience of House of a Thousand Corpses because like what is more like a, a quintessential kind of like cute bucolic and idyllic Americana thing than a family getting together and putting on a variety show for the holidays, except for here, like with all of Rob Zombie's Americana, it's the exploded inversion. But like what's, what's really telling is like, who is laughing his head off? Who is just devouring this experience? Right. It's, it's one of these insufferable hillbilly elegy guys. Yeah, who who isn't who doesn't seem to be aware of the the kind of the fact that it's not for him, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, he's he's completely unaware of his status as like an outsider in this and in any kind of like problematic nature that would arise. And he's also wholly unaware. Both of them, both of our hillbilly elegy dudes, are wholly unaware of just how like. How, how much like the, the level of uncomfortability radiating off of their partners is enough to like melt steel beams or something. Absolutely. Um, and they don't seem in, interested or aware enough to do so. But actually, given that you brought up the given that you brought up the um, kind of variety show, it's worth on my desk next to me is a copy of Frederick Jameson's um, Postmodernism, the Cultural Logic of Late Capitalism. And I think we should talk about post, uh, we should talk about Frederick Jameson, uh, maybe the greatest uh, American Marxist literary critic in the context of Rob Rob Zombie. Let's do it. What do you got? So he, here's a kind of question for you, which is that Jameson draws a distinction between two kind of predominant postmodern cultural forms, uh, one which is a parody. Um, and the other, which is a pastiche. So uh, a parody is is the recreation of an old aesthetic style, uh, but kind of like with with the purpose of commenting on it. Um, 
however, like all of the stuff that, that Rob Zombie references doesn't exist anymore, right? You know, the, the old um, Halloween uh, horror hosts are not really a thing anymore. So you can't parody, you can't, you can't parody them. But what you can do is you can create a kind of pastiche, um, which is designed to, it doesn't comment on something because it, the thing that it's, it's, it's not a parody because the original source no longer exists, but it's recreating the same kind of aesthetic uh, objects to give you the same, a kind of familiar aesthetic, aesthetic experience. Um, I mean, I'm just wondering, do you think there's something, do you think that's, that's what this film is trying to do? And do you think there is anything that it adds to that pastiche that is original to itself? So I, I think this is a c- incredibly interesting and I think a very fruitful way of exploring not only House of a Thousand Corpses, but literally every single thing Rob Zombie has ever done. Yeah, precisely. Um, it, it, and when I say everything, I mean, you can apply this to Rob Zombie's t-shirt collection currently available on his web store. Um, <laughs> but what, what we have here is like someone whose entire body of work is very interested in exploring uh, the Americana's past, right? Like, like digging, digging through the ditches of, of Americana. Right. And like with the horror host specifically, I think that's really interesting because the horror host phenomena has not gone away as much as it is formally completely shifted because it's media is dead. Um, yeah. There are there are a few local access TV horror hosts still working here in the United States, um, and I am very big fans of a few of you. If you're listening to this show, uh, sign my T-shirt. <laughs> but like, there are a lot of horror hosts have had to change venue, right? Because that venue is gone. You know, like in a, in a very direct sense, you and I are horror hosts. Uh, we're just we're just doing this different because uh, there's no local access TV that would run this kind of stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, and like I, I say this as someone, you know, from the home of Sven Gulli, right? Like <laughs> the stuff is still alive. It's just like it's it has to be found in new ways. And I think Rob Zombie is doing that, right? Uh, you know, like the, the Dr. Wolfenstein bit at the beginning of the show, which is something that Rob Zombie likes to revisit often in his work. I, I think as a way of, of attempting to keep a like cultural tradition alive, right? To to breathe new life and to re-explore how this figure can kind of re-enter the world that we're in. What are your thoughts? I actually think that's a really nice way of putting it, um, and I think I think it's really easy to see pastiche as being kind of empty, like in in terms of its content, right? It's 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 nostalgic it's backward looking it's trying to it's trying to recreate something that's been lost and so there's a kind of melancholy to it um which i actually think becomes much clearer in the next film but i i actually think there is something there is something of the conservationist uh, to 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 rob zombie's work right there is this attempt to to um like people, people talk about people talk about like how it's kind of shocking and offensive and horrifying, but it's like it references the Brady Bunch and and like the Marx Brothers. Like, yeah. and, literally and, every character's name is a Marx Brothers name, right? It's so so, 
and I often think that this this is something really important that gets completely obscured, which is the ways in which pastiche is not just an empty recreation, but can often be um, an act of or an attempt to preserve something mm-hmm. that was aesthetically or, or artistically or culturally meaningful. Oh, folks, you heard it here first. Rob Zombie is a cultural archivist. <laughs> All right, we are we are rapidly uh, approaching uh, having this episode go over time. So would you like to uh, move on to a future topic? Uh, yes, I'm just going to chop that bit because we kind of covered it. Should we talk about the police? Yes, let us let us now let us now do that. Uh, what do you think? What do you think Rob Zombie thinks about the police? <laughs> well, what, what what I find to be really interesting in this movie is that even though these cops are supposed to be endemic to the community that is being depicted here, they're amazingly hostile to everyone in it. Right, like they're immediately hostile to Captain Open Parentheses, likely a PhD, close parentheses, Spalding. And they're also immediately hostile to the entire Firefly family. And and like that to me, like that whole exchange between Spalding and these like like two local area cops is I think like incredibly telling about historic cultural dynamics, right? Like the the, the the kind of antagonisms that naturally emerged between like you know the american rurality and law enforcement right like american rurality as especially as an organized labor body and mm, and the yeah. fact that like the police were called in as strike breakers and often like shot at these people you know like this is this is like there's that contemporary country radio country Right. That's like, you know, all about like loving the country and respecting the law and drinking beer. And then there's like a much less radio friendly and much more historic country. That's about like cultural modality that ties back to the long memory. Right. That that, that hasn't yet been subsumed into the, like the machinery of capitalism. And I think for whatever reason, House of 1000 Corpses taps that vein. Yeah, I mean, the whole point is that cops are antagonistic, but are ultimately impotent, right? The law is impotent to impose any kind of juridical or uh, legal structuring upon the the violent excesses of the Firefly family, right? So the police show up at the, the farm and are almost, almost immediately all get shot in the head. Uh, like the the police are, are an antagonist and are kind of hostile, but are ultimately completely and utterly useless. Oh yeah, and and I mean like the scene where the where Otis executes that one cop, I think is like one of the most effective scenes in this entire movie. It's so slow and understated and not gory at all, and like. It, it just it highlights the violence so intensely, you know. And I know this is a bit adjacent to the conversation we're having, having, and something that should maybe have been in the formless zone. But that is one of my favorite shots. But besides, I love the insert shots are my favorite shots in this movie. But that that sequence, 
you know, yeah, where the camera absolutely. just lifts up and floats away. And, and we kind of experience it's like it's like this weightless powerlessness where we're out of our body. It's, it's like we're the soul of the other man who just died watching this from the heavens. It's, it's like if there's any scene in this movie that's like legitimately unsettling, it's that one for me. Yeah, I know that's I completely agree with you. Actually, it's one of my favorite scenes in the whole film. And, it, you know, it's got this oldies track in the background. There's a moment of complete silence. You just you just see the gunshot. You don't hear it. Um, it's it's incredibly good, but the impotence of the police raises a kind of bigger question that I would I would like us to consider, which is how do we understand ethically the actions of the Firefly flat family? Uh, because like obviously we're not supposed to go. Yes, it's great to do abductions and like experimental medical torture murder <laughs> like when we're not we're not supposed to condone that right now there are no. generally there are generally kind of two theories there are two schools of um philosophical understandings of 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 what we might term evil so you have the 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 kind of uh, kantian school uh which often gets referred to as radical evil which is this notion that uh there is a kind of corruption in in human in the human ontology there is there is uh the twisted timber of the soul right we can just be we can willingly do horrendous things and that is an innate tendency to all of us or there is um there is a different theory of evil it's called pervative evil or, or and it comes from the work of saint augustine augustine says that actually evil is not is not a willed action Evil is an absence of of uh, is an ontological void. It's a lack. There's something missing, right? There isn't something that has been consciously willed. There is a there is an absence of being because all being is good as it's created by God, uh, as Augustine would put it. Now, I would contend yes. that Rob Zombie is a Kantian in his ethics right I'm, i i just immediately transformed into the sickos meme i am so here for this keep going <laughs> uh because and and to me this is the whole point of the film right which is that there is not necessarily anything extraordinary about the firefly flam family right mm -hmm. everything everything else about them underscores their sheer kind of ordinariness right they're, they're the people that you find at the roadside attractions they're the people that live in the farm across the way but there is something within them that seeks justification for kind of horrendous torture and murder as a sort of like consciously willed decision. What do you think? So I have a question for you and I am not nearly as well versed in Augustinian thinking as you are. Uh, so one of the things that kind of struck me is that you were talking about this Augustinian approach to evil as being an ontological void, right? Being this kind of absence. Um, and that, of course, made me, because I am a, a, a one-trick pony, it made me think of Mark Fisher. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, and like, okay, like, yes, this is an ontological void, this is an absence, but there's a presence inside this absence, right? There's this intense evil that rushes in to fill the void. Um, but one of the things that got me thinking about is like, okay, like the, this, this void, this abscess forms as 
in part a lack of an ability to articulate their condition and understand the world in which they live and navigate the space and figure out what's going on here, right? In further, our artistic depiction also kind of reflects the anger that lives within this abscess. What would you think about that as kind of like an exploration of this kind of like ontological void as a progenitor of evil? Yeah. Um, or am I totally baseless? <laughs> no, I, I think it's arguable, right? But uh, so uh, Augustine says like it's um, evil. Evil in itself doesn't exist. He says it doesn't exist, mm-hmm. right? It's it's a corruption of the good. Yeah. Um, and I suppose if you really wanted to, we could go, right, oh, oh, what is Otis trying to do? Right? Otis wants to wants to make art, wants to create something, and just thinks that the way to do it is by abducting and torturing cheerleaders. <laughs> right? So so there is there is a kind of like there's a possibility that you could read it that way, but I, I don't know. Is that Maybe. Well, I, I was I guess I was thinking more explicitly politically in the context of this as a revenge film of the rural against the suburban. And and kind of the, the, the through through like almost like a historical lens. You know, because this is we are so many years deep in a kind of like this you know, capitalism constantly reproducing and reinventing its own ideologies that a lot of people you know, unionization rates are, you know, climbing, thank God, but at record lows on a historic scale, right? Like we've really lost the sense of how to speak as members of the working poor and the working class. And like that, that's an ontological void and something needs to fill void. You know, there, there's always, mm, there's always yeah. air rushing into the vacuum and like for, for the Firefly family, what rushes into that vacuum is kind of this profound evil. Whereas I, in maybe a more banal example, what would rush into that void would be like your, your base level consumerism, you know, just kind of like an obsession with the next iWatch and its features or whatever. I think that's, I think that's a super interesting idea, but I, I am also like Kant would say evil can be chosen. Mm-hmm. Whereas, um, Augustine or or the the kind of probative theory of evil would say that evil is the result of the good not fully realizing itself. Mm-hmm. Right? Um it's it's because so evil really isn't a thing. And it's like I I I don't know. I cuz I think what you're saying is super compelling, but I am sort of like have they have they chosen to do things? which are so kind of antithetical to the way that everybody else lives? Or is that choice in itself structured by bigger kind of more systemic political issues? Uh, ultimately, the question of the Firefly family basically boils down to what your position on the existence of free will is. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. I also wonder here what the like kind of like a dialectical motion through this is like what what's the what's the synthesis here you know if we have like the no free will option and then the yes free will option how does that further trouble our appraisal of the firefly family and, and the specific world that they find themselves in but i guess yeah. uh you know we're already we're already going over but that might be that's a bonus question for you the audience to ponder and get back to us on um but i think that brings us up so maybe like another way of thinking about this 
which is this kind of notion of um, jouissance. Mm-hmm. We could think about this. We we could think about this philosophically with kind of theories of evil, or we could think about this psychoanalytically, which is maybe slightly more advantageous because, in some ways, I think psychoanalysis links more directly and explicitly into the notion of the political that you're bringing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like Lacan says, that jouissance is a kind of like excess. It's it's this abundance something beyond kind of pure life, life in and of itself. Mm-hmm. But it's also something that exists beyond the pleasure principle. Yeah. Which which is this Freudian notion that actually there has to be something that drives us to do things other than pleasure because often we will do things which seem kind of painful or unpleasant, things which are not pleasurable. Um, and I think this this idea of a kind of jouissance is actually super helpful in talking about the Firefly family. What do you think? I I think I think this is really interesting. So so where where are you mapping the jouissance onto kind of I guess what I would describe as the collective behavior of this family? Because they're all so they're all playing the same game. <laughs> that, that that game being sewing people together in their basement. And and obviously we can we can we can think about that in like material concerns, right? They need fresh attractions for Captain Spaulding's. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm sorry, yes, there are the material concerns, like you know how how many how many yards of fresh people does it take to make one alligator boy? Yeah, uh, twenty yards of human skin equals one <laughs> alligator boy, as Karl Jesus. Marx told us. Um, but there's a circularity to, to that, right? There's a circularity to that, which their actions kind of go above and beyond, which is like, if they were really just... The scene that I'm thinking of is when they're dri- when the four of them are driving away uh, in, the tr- in, the, in the car that RJ has repaired. Mm-hmm. And uh, Otis and Tiny um, destroy, like, destroy the car. Yeah. And it's like, you didn't need to do that, right? Mm-hmm. You didn't... There wasn't there wasn't a, there wasn't that kind of utilitarian need, and it probably wasn't that enjoyable. It wasn't like there's this there's a kind of initial pleasure, but there's this excess of violence, right? You know, Otis doesn't just have one cheerleader that he's abducted and wants to do like art art house torture murder to. He has five. You know, they're not they're not the 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 the, the sewers are full to bursting of 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 kind of. Uh, weird medical experiments uh, produced by uh, Doctor Satan with his PhD in sociology. <laughs> <laughs> so, so like, um, a baby scalps him because he can't guess what her favorite movie star is. Like everything is disproportionate if you think about it in strictly utilitarian mm-hmm. um, ways, right? So there is this kind of. What do you think? Do you think I'm? Do you think I'm onto something here? Oh no, I think this is really good. I I think this is a really potent way of exploring the actions, especially of Baby. Yes. Um, who who I find to be one of the most compelling characters because everyone else in in the Firefly family has their kind of like Texas Chainsaw level role. Mm-hmm. But Baby her 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 kind of like her bubbly nature her childishness her playfulness 
I, I think that really speaks to kind of an interpretation through jouissance. Uh, Lacan has this great uh, analogy that he uses in uh, Seminar 15. Jouissance begins with a tickle and ends with a blaze of petrol. And it's like, is this not, is this not that film? This is literally, this is literally, did, did Lacan do rewrites is now my question. I have to ask Rob Zombie, <laughs> at, at Rob Zombie, did Lacan rewrite this script? Um, well, one, one thing this is making me think of is, uh, you know, this is, this, this episode is kind of the pervert's guide to House of a Thousand Corpses. Mm-hmm. And, and as such, that scene with where, where Baby partially scalps the dude because he can't guess her favorite actress I think is really interesting from kind of like the Zizekian approach of the real, right? Like a lot of the focus on pop cultural ephemera that we have is that it eclipses the reality that we live in, right? It it gives us some imaginary and fantasy shielding to put up uh, to kind of dull the blow of the raw horror that is the world that we find ourselves in. And I think... Part of what's going on in House of a Thousand Corpses is Rob Zombie kind of taking that shielding down, you know, like like being like, okay, you're still going to have the pop culture of Femina. You're going to have your horror hosts. You're going to have your cute John Wayne references. You're going to have your pop star FAQs, but you're going to have that alongside the unrelenting and tormenting agony of reality. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, I think so. And I think that's also part of what makes this more than just an empty pastiche, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, we're we're approaching the end of our of our little uh, roller coaster ride through House of a Thousand Corpses. Do you have any thoughts on camp? Well, I I mean, we have treated this movie quite seriously, right? We've yes, put, as we are wont to do. <laughs> as we are wont to do, but we should not we should not forget. That this is also a movie where Sid Haig plays a terrifying comedy clown who swears a lot. Uh, and this film can also be really funny. Oh, yeah. And so I, I, just, I just wanted to share something from the very beginning of Susan Sontag's 1964 essay, Notes on Camp. And Sontag says, to start very generally, camp is a certain mode of aestheticism. It is one way of seeing the world as an aesthetic phenomenon. That way, the way of camp, is not in terms of beauty, but in terms of the degree of artifice, of stylization. And this is a kind of achingly stylized film. A very, in, in, and I don't mean this in a derogatory sense, in a sense, a very artificial film. Mm-hmm. Um, therefore, a question for you. Is House of a Thousand Corpses a camp classic? So what do you think about that? What do you think about that? I, I, I think this is a really compelling way to explore Rob Zombie's House of a Thousand Corpses, right? We have, and I also think this ties back in to, to kind of Zizek's ideas on the real, right? And Jouissance, you know, when we look at this film, yeah, this is and to tie it back, I guess, all the way to the beginning and make it full and complete. But like, you know, like this, this is a movie oozing through the cracks in the real, right? It's it's a gooey kind of it's a, as Rob Zombie said, this film is a mess. 
but but I think part of that is it's just like it's bubbling over everywhere. The the gore is excessive, the violence is excessive, but that also means that there's going to be excessive humor. You know, there's a the, there's a stand up comedy routine inside of this movie. And and there's Captain Spaulding doing what feels like an improv comedy bit at its opening. You know, mm-hmm. this this film is is very camp. <laughs> Well, should we, should we, I think then it's probably a good idea for us to ask some questions of the people listening. Yes, um, it is time. It is time for us to uh, challenge you, the audience, to escape our subterranean layer of academic questioning. Scientists of all ages. Who? What? Brilliant. Gee, Just brilliant. So, uh... You know that my question, my question obviously is is about whether this is a uh, a camp classic of a movie. Um, what about you, Ash? What are your questions? So my first question for you, dear listener, is: How is the depiction of the working poor reproduced in Rob Zombie's House of a Thousand Corpses? Does this film offer any challenges to how cinema might typically approach the working class? And question number two. One of the aspects of this film that gets the most negative criticism is Rob Zombie's use of insert shots. These shots are often used to convey plot or during scenes that would have been intensely violent. How do these insert shots challenge our expectations of the formalist language of cinema? Uh, Well, I I just want to thank everyone for pulling up to our roadside attraction today and getting, getting to sample some of our homespun country wares. Uh, yes, thank you so much for coming. Remember, tell your friends and make sure to pick up your uh, bag of fried chicken on the way out. Yes, to tell your friends, tell your family, uh, tell that suspicious clown you met in that roadside attraction. Uh, tell tell the out-of-place country hitchhiker uh, to listen, like, and subscribe to our show. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky.